churches. And we're talking about a church called Pergamus tonight. Uh, we've talked about Ephesus. We've talked about Smyrna. Uh, Ephesus is really good at drawing lines. Uh, Smyrna uh, was the church that suffered quite a bit. And uh, their, uh, their suffering led to their ability to withstand certain things. Uh, look, if you would, back at Revelation chapter 2. And I went to about a church called uh, Pergamos. So let's all stand for just a minute together. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. And um, it's very clear that uh, the, the last church that we talked about, what really marked them was their suffering. And, and in the midst of their suffering, uh, man, right when I thought we wouldn't see the Pikachu hat, there it is. Praise God. All right. So, yes, he did preach in that hat, guys. It keeps you warm, though, right, Javen? Yeah, amen. Uh, uh, the, the church there in Smyrna, obviously, what you see about them is that they suffered greatly. And we talked about the application to uh, not only a period of church history, but also the fact that there's going to be a church in the Great Tribulation that is going to suffer and suffer immensely uh, for a period of 10 days. You say, what does that 10 days mean? It means 10 days. Because uh, that's what it says, all right? Uh, and now we're kind of moving on from Smyrna, going on to the next church. And the next church that's listed is a church named Pergamos. Uh, and and the, the, the name itself has such a unique uh, connotation to it, uh, it's really, really hard to ignore. The name of Pergamos, uh, the definition of, or the, uh, yeah, the, the, the meaning of the name, if you will, uh, means much marriage, much marriage. And uh, I thought maybe that's kind of a sign for New Heights Baptist Church. Joe's getting married, you know, and Eric's getting married and Caleb and Sarah getting married. But I don't think that's really what it's talking about. We'll, we'll lay this all out. Uh, but keep that in mind. It means much marriage. Look at Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Uh, and, and keep in mind when the church was being persecuted, that is when the church flourished. Okay. Uh, we don't like to think of things that way because we like to have our rights and we like to have uh, comfort and we like to have convenience. And I do not have a martyr's complex. I'm not asking the Lord for, for suffering and persecution. I'm not. If you are, you're more spiritual than I am. All right. Having said that, the reality from the Bible is this. The early church, when it suffered and it was persecuted, it flourished. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. They went everywhere preaching the gospel. That's how the gospel was spread. The very thing that they thought would eliminate the gospel allowed it to spread and flourish. Uh, you see that over and over throughout history. Uh, look at Revelation chapter 2 in uh, verse number uh, 10, or verse number 11 rather, uh, verse 12, I'm sorry. And the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. It is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It is not somebody else. It is not an aberration. It is not a, a, an angel. Uh, this is the Lord speaking. It's, it's good that you get a hold of that. Uh, don't take any of this as hearsay. These are the direct words of God. You need, you need to believe that, all right? Or it won't do you any good. Uh, notice what it says in verse 13. This is the Lord's message to them. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days when Antipas which uh, was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. Notice he mentions Satan's seat in verse 13 at the beginning, and he says that Satan dwells there uh, in verse 13 at the end. But I have a few things against thee. So here's, here's what happens when the Lord addresses these churches. He gives them, here's what you've done right, here's what you've done wrong. 
If all you ever get is you're wonderful, you're beautiful, you're amazing, you're perfect, you're, all right, that, that's not healthy for you. You need to know where you can improve and you can grow closer to God. If all you ever got was you're worthless, you can't do any good, you're a bunch of... Okay, that's also no good because you need balance in your life. Uh, the Bible talks about reproving, rebuking, and also exhorting with all of suffering and doctrine. But notice what he says their problem is here in verse 14. I have a few things against thee. Because thou hast there them that... Well, in other words, they're allowing some folks in that shouldn't be. Thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. We'll learn what that is. Who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed on idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent. That's a Bible word, by the way. And it still is an invaluable word to our, our, our dictionary today, our language today. Repent. You don't hear a lot, but it's a good one. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And by the way, if you ever have God fighting you, you're in trouble. You know, people say the devil's fighting me good. You want the devil to fight you. If, any, if you want to pick between the devil and God, pick the devil to fight you. You don't want God fighting you. Uh, the warning here is if you don't straighten up, I'm going to come and straighten things up myself, and you don't want that. Uh, verse 17, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and in this stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. We'll talk about uh, what we can make out of that uh, toward the end of the lesson. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And uh, Javen, we're thankful to have you here tonight. know it's your uh, last time for a while. Uh, would you open us up in a word of prayer, sir? Amen. Amen. Be seated, if you will. Uh, let, let, me, uh, let me give you some things to consider in regards to what we're looking at tonight. Um, I want to remind you, the first church that we looked at is the church of Ephesus. And what Ephesus was known for was the ability to draw lines. That's the first period in church history. Um, and if you, if you look at these things, again, what, we're, what we learned is historically they, these churches were churches in Asia Minor, which is Turkey today. Um, I believe up here on the map, you've got a, a, a kind of a, an understanding of how these churches are laid out. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, also known as Pergamum, uh, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, literally in that order. And the way the Lord addresses them is kind of the order in which you might travel that road, if you will. And so what you've got is you've got Ephesus, the church that knows how to draw lines. They've got discernment. They believe the Bible, but they got cold in their relationship with God. Uh, and, and then after that, you see that it's going to cost them something. And Smyrna goes through great tribulation and great suffering. Uh, but after that period of great suffering, what happens is the church is given an opportunity to assimilate and to become kind of part of the world, let the, the world be a part of the church, and the church kind of join with the world. And, and that period of time is about 325 to 500 AD uh, 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 as far as the practical application of where that church 
fits in church history. We'll make sense of that in a little bit. Uh, the idea is this. Yes, it was a literal church uh, in, in history uh, in Asia Minor, where you see it on the map, about 16 miles uh, inland from the Aegean Sea. Uh, but it was, it's also a picture of church history, secondly. And lastly, it's a picture of the fact there's going to be churches in the Great Tribulation that go through the things that are listed out in Revelation chapter number 2. There's some real funky stuff. You guys read that hidden manna stuff and that, that white stone. You're like, what is that all about? Exactly, right? Uh, so we'll, we'll explain that to the best of our ability in a little bit. But the idea is this. I want to understand the applications uh, of, these, of, of these different churches. Now, understand this. It's important to lay out what does the word church mean? We're talking about seven churches. All right, so I, I don't, I'm not a big Greek guy, but I, I want you to know that it's there. That's the Greek word for it, and it means church. And I put this up here in Spanish because I think you Spanish speakers uh, might appreciate ecclesia, iglesia, right? Uh, but what it means is, is uh, basically in the English language, it's the word for church. Now, there's, there's something you need to understand about that word church. It's used primarily in two different ways in the New Testament. It's not always used the same way. Uh, it's like the word salvation. Do you realize not every time the word saved shows up, it's talking about your spiritual salvation? Uh, in, in Timothy, it talks about the, uh, a woman being saved in childbearing. That's not talking about the salvation of her soul. She doesn't have a baby and go, okay, now I'm saved. That's not how that works. Uh, the, the, the context will tell you what salvation is talking about. Now, uh, here's another one. Uh, look at Romans chapter number eight. Uh, condemnation. When you look at John chapter five, verse 24, it talks about uh, uh, um believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and believing on his name, believing on his word. And, and when you do that, you won't come into condemnation, but you're passed from death into life. All right, John 5. When you see that, that condemnation absolutely is eternal in nature. If you're without Jesus Christ, not because of my opinion, not because of the Baptist church, but because God said so himself, if you die without Jesus Christ uh, as your savior, what happens is this, your soul will have to pay for your sins for all eternity. If you accept Jesus Christ, the payment that he made on your behalf will be applied to your spiritual bank account and your slate will be clean, your soul will be washed, and you'll be in the presence of God forever and ever. All right, that, that condemnation in John 5 is spiritual and eternal. But look at Romans chapter number 8. Just to see an example of what we're talking about. The word condemnation does not always refer to condemnation of the soul. Uh, Romans chapter 8. Uh, look, if you would, at verse number one. There is therefore now no what? To them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now, now let, let's be real clear here. Uh, you know what that is saying? That, that's saying there is condemnation in the flesh. You say, what's the condemnation in the flesh? Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 talks about it. Uh, it. It talks about Christians that live with unconfessed sins and take part of the Lord's Supper, and some of them are weak, and some are sickly, and some die. Uh, you can have condemnation in the flesh. The Lord, the Bible says, God is your heavenly Father when you get saved. Amen? And for all the blessings that that means, here's something you have to also understand. You are not someone that's just roaming the street without a father if you're saved. If you're saved, God's your father. So when you get out of line, it's his a privilege and, yes, responsibility as a father to get you back in line. How does he do that? With correction, with letting you reap the consequences of condemnation in the flesh. God does that, and God allows it in your life to get you back in line. You say, what is that? Condemnation, but it's condemnation in the flesh not the condemnation of your soul. Uh, look at John chapter 5. Go to John chapter 5. I'm just trying to illustrate this. The word church has different connotations in your Bible, uh, just like condemnation does, just like salvation does. Uh, John chapter number 5. And we're going verse by verse in John 
And we're in chapter 5 right now in Sunday school. Uh, we'll be back in it uh, Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. Look at John 5. And look, if you would, at verse 24. Verily, verily, I say to you, uh, this is Wednesday night Bible what? Right. We're going to flip a lot, guys. We've got a lot of verses to go through, so bear with me. I hope it will be helpful to you take notes. Verily, verily, I say to you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. That's present tense. And shall not come into what? But is passed from death into life. You can experience condemnation in the flesh as a believer, but not the condemnation of your soul. Thank God for that. All right, once you're a child of God. So the word, the word condemnation is used differently in the Bible. The word salvation is used differently in the Bible. Uh, saved is not always the salvation of your soul. Sometimes it's the salvation of a situation or a relationship or a marriage like it's talked about in Timothy about deception. Uh, but when it comes to the word church, understand, it's not always used the same way either. There are two uh, primary definitions of the word church. Now, when we say we are a local New Testament church, we're talking this one over here, all right? When you get saved, however, go to Ephesians chapter 5. The moment you get saved, you are spiritually baptized. You experience a spiritual new birth. And the moment that happens, you are spiritually placed into a body, a, a body of believers. So, so last now listen, when you get saved, you didn't know. Who knew all this stuff when they got saved? I didn't know this. Here's all I knew when I got saved. I was going to hell. Christ saved me. I, he said if I believed on him, I could be saved, and I wouldn't have to pay for my sins in hell. I trusted him as my Savior. I'm going to heaven. That's about all that I knew. But, 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 but looking back on all that God did, what he did is he, he cut away the flesh from my soul. Thank God for that. That was a spiritual operation. He spiritually baptized me. He placed me in Christ, and he put Christ in me. And the moment that took place and I experienced a spiritual new birth, I am brought into a spiritual body of believers. Now, now look at Ephesians 5, and the term that the Lord uses here is, is the bride. Uh, the bride, you say, who is that? That's the church. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, and this is uh, uh, some instruction of married people. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 5. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church, singular, and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, which is why ladies on their wedding day get that pretty white dress on. They walk down the aisle and they present themselves to the, to the groom and so on and so forth. We say, where does that come from? It's a, it's a biblical idea. The idea is someday when we get raptured out of here, all right, and the Bible says right now we are espoused. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9-ish, I think maybe 11. He says we are espoused. That means we are getting ready to get married uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in a relationship as a church, not New Heights Baptist Church, but all born-again believers that are part of the body of Christ, all right? Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 also explains this, but the moment that you are placed in that body, you are espoused, you are part of a unit, a corporate body, a corporate church, if you will, that is going to be married to Jesus Christ someday. It is a spiritual body made up of all believers. It doesn't matter what denomination. Listen, I'm telling you right now, I know some people that go to a Catholic church and they're born again uh, believers i'm not going to say you're going to learn a whole lot of bible that way but they're saved uh, it doesn't matter what church you go to i'm not saying you ought to go to a church where you're not getting fed the word of god that's a responsibility you have to seek that out on your own having said that the church the denomination name on the church that doesn't make you saved or not saved if someone's here tonight counting on new heights baptist church saving them you're in the wrong place you're believing the wrong thing that name doesn't save anybody the only name that saves anybody is jesus christ 
So when you get saved, you are placed in the body of Christ. Look at uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'll have you go there after all. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And so when we talk about seven churches, we're talking about local churches, all right? We're not referencing the body of Christ. Now, everyone that's a born-again believer, all right, uh, from the time of Christ's resurrection and moving on forward, and uh, when you see uh, uh, there at the day of Pentecost, uh, you see the church gather. There's a body that gathers locally, but also all believers from that point on are part of the body of Christ. Espouse, that's kind of the word we use today is engaged, all right? So Joe is espoused to Tara, and Tara is espoused to Joe, all right? In regards to the body of Christ, uh, you are part of that body the moment you get saved. Uh, First Corinthians chapter 12, and you are espoused, we are corporately espoused, engaged to be married to Jesus Christ. First Corinthians 12, uh, look if you would at verse 12. For as the body is one, and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is what? That you're, that you're part of his body. You're bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one what? Body. All right, look at verse number 14. For the what? Body. body is not one member but many. If the foot shall say, because I'm not the hand, I am not of the what? Body. All right, so the body of Christ, the Bible says that, uh, think of it this way, Adam and Eve. You know what Adam says to Eve? That you are now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. We're joined. Okay, so when you get saved, you are in Christ and Christ is in you, all right? So you are bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh, spiritually speaking, and you are part of that body. Now, when we say the church at large, that's what we're talking about, all born-again Christians. When we're talking about local churches, all right, New Heights Baptist Church, for example, we're talking about a called-out assembly locally, a group of believers that gathers awake. It is called out. Listen, guys, we come, we come out Wednesday and Sunday. Why do we do that? You know what this is? Rapture drill. Okay, because one day God is going to call us out. Amen. We're going to be a called out assembly up there. So Wednesday night and Sunday morning is rapture drill. When you come to church, you know, you're saying I'm one of them. I'm being called out from the world. I align myself, my testimony, my, if I can use this word, it's a, a word that's used often today. My identity is not just mine. My identity is I'm a child of God and I am part of his body, of his church. Therefore, I'm going to be part of a local assembly of people that are called out. And when the doors are opened by the grace of God and I can be there, I'm going to prove myself to be a called out believer. All right. Why are we called out? We are called out so that we can be joined to him. God does not ask you to separate from things for no reason. The reason why I wear the wedding ring is so everybody else knows I'm off the market. Nobody, not that anybody wants me, but the idea is simply this. I'm off the market. Why? I am separate from every other woman that there ever has been, ever will be. Why? I've got mine. I've got mine. So I'm separate from everything else so I can be joined under her. I can't be joined to her and join to everybody else. There's a Bible word for that. It's called adultery. And there's something called spiritual adultery, which is what what the Lord gets on to them about. Uh, You say, why is their name much marriage? Because they allow things in the church that eventually make life a little bit easier for them. If you had gone 
through the persecution that they were going through, the Christians were the off-scouring. They were the rejects. They were the outcasts of society. Nobody wanted them around. If you're a Christian, you're getting thrown into the lions, getting thrown in the Colosseum, getting eaten alive, a burn at the stake, hung, whatever else, crucified on crosses by the Romans and the rest of it. And you know what? If, if you're one of those that wants to kind of get along with the world, you don't want to be identified with those people. Those are the Jesus freaks. So maybe at a certain point you may just go, okay, we're done with all that. We'll take the easy way out. And so right around 325, a man named Constantine uh, has a vision and uh, uh, gathers some people and says they're going to have a big council. And what they do is they decide that we're no longer going to be pagan Rome. We're not going to be papal Rome. And they kind of, the, the beginning of the Roman Catholic Church is right there. He said, what is it? It's kind of this uh, mixing of, hey, look, we're not going to persecute you anymore. You come in. But also, by the way, what they did in 313 AD is this. They allowed every unbeliever to come be a part. We're going to have church and all the bishops, you come and and we're going to get everybody together. Listen, the church flourished when it was persecuted. What happens when you allow the world in your life is you lose your identity. If I start fooling around on my spouse, I lose that identity. Are you with me? So when I start kind of draw, blurring the lines and, well, that's not a big deal, and that's not a big deal, and that's not a big deal, before you know it, I'm, I'm an arm's distance from her. Before you know it, I'm a, I'm a football field away from her, and you know what I'm doing? I'm inching myself closer and closer to something else. Well, the Christian, I think one of the hardest things for you is this. You're going to be constantly tempted. I'll put you this way. Here's an example. When you mix things that don't belong together. You know the, the Bible word for that is adultery? Here's another uh, word for it, leaven. Leaven. You say, what is that all about? Well, leaven in the Bible is a picture of false doctrine. It's a picture of sin. Look at uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and Galatians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and Galatians chapter 5. Leaven. You say, what is leaven? Well, um, you'll remember that when God calls the children of Israel out of Egypt, Exodus chapter 12, when he does that, he gives them instruction about what, what food to take with them. And he tells them, I want you to take unleavened bread. That looks kind of like a flying saucer. I'm sorry, guys. I'm not a good artist. Uh, That's kind of like flat bread, okay? Now, look, I want to be honest with you. If you gave me a choice between a big, beautiful roll of freshly baked sourdough bread from a French bakery that if anybody wants to buy me (laughs) after the month of January, because I can't eat it right now. My wife is suffering, making me suffer. Anyways, um, we're on this thing that we're doing right now, but uh, if I had a choice between sourdough bread, looks like this, or whatever that is, I'm choosing that. That appeals to me more than that. Well, you know what the Bible says about Jesus Christ? He was the bread that was broken for us. And you know what he is to the world? He is less appealing than this. You know what he is? He is despised and rejected of men. That also the Bible says about him, we hid as it were our faces from him. There was no beauty found in him. He's, he's what the world will look at and go, we don't want you. We want this. Well, the Bible says, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when it talks about uh, 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 sin in the church. Sin in the church. Let me just say this right now. Uh, I'm not the Holy Spirit of God. I don't want to run around playing the Holy Spirit. The God, God's given you Holy Spirit, and he'll be a much better Holy Spirit than I could ever be. Uh, but I'll just say this much. Uh, when you bring sin into the church, you're not just messing you up, you're messing the church up. 
Now, that doesn't mean that when you're backslidden, you should stay away from church. What that means is this. When someone comes to church and they are hurting and they are struggling, you ought to be here. But when someone comes in saying, I don't care what you say. I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what the preacher says. You can stick it where the sun doesn't shine. I don't care what God says. Let me tell you right now, that's a problem. That's a huge problem. And I'll tell you what Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians 5 is exactly that kind of attitude. There was, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but there was fornication going on, and it was not addressed. And then when Paul try, when they try to address it, their brother doesn't really care about it. So eventually, you know what they got to do? They got to kick that brother out. You say, why? He didn't want to repent. Listen to me right now. Uh, if someone came to church and they're lost without Jesus Christ and they don't know any better and they are, man, their life is a complete mess and they're living in sin. You know what I say to that? Amen. That's what they're supposed to do. They're lost without God. I'm not endorsing sin. I'm just saying, you know what? I expect that. But when the Holy Spirit of God comes inside of you and gives you the opportunity to resist that and move away from it, and you don't take it, that's not on God, that's not on the church, and don't get in the preacher's face and say, I wish you would back off and say things differently and nicely. I'm not going to do it. I want you to understand, sin is sin. You need to come to a place where you understand there is a right and there's a wrong, all right? Uh, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Look, if you would, at, um, oh, let's see here, verse number 5. Now, let me tell you something. Five in the Bible is associated with death. So it's interesting that the word leaven shows up in 1 Corinthians 5 and in Galatians chapter 5. You say, what is it? It's associated with something that's going to kill you. But boy, it tastes good when you're eating it. Are you with me? Now, you know what leaven is? Leaven is a, 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 there's a you, can, you can use yeast or other leavening agents. Uh, but, but basically, if you, if you make bread without leaven, it comes out flat. When you add the leaven, it raises, and you say, what is that? Think about it this way. Doesn't the Bible say God wants to edify you? The word edify, you know what it means? It means to build up. All right? Uh, a couple guys went down to Jacksonville. Uh, we were at the Jubilee, and they had that, bu- that building's been in progress for, I think, three or four years, something like that, three or four years. All right, guess what? They're still not in it yet. You know why? Because buildings take time. And God's work in your life takes time. You know what shortcuts do? Shortcuts make it look like you're going somewhere when you're really not. You know what building does? Building is like this, slowly. And there's a foundation. You know what yeast does? Poof, it puffs up. See, there's a difference between puffing up and building up. Puffing up is... Building up is slow over time. And you know what the world says? You don't got to do that. Just take this pill. You don't got to go through that. Just do this. You don't got to just shortcut here. Hey, let's just do this. And God goes, no, let's do this the right way. Well, the right way is harder. Yeah, but it'll last. It'll last. Uh, Look at 1 Corinthians 5. Let me just read this for you real quick. We'll go to Galatians 5 in just a moment. 1 Corinthians 5, look if you would at verse number 5. To deliver such a one into Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, notice the words matter. The rest of the verse does not say that the soul may be saved. You're, if you're a brother in Christ, your soul is already saved. That the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That's not, that's not uh, so much a reference to your soul going to heaven. That's already taken care of. Your spirit being saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Say, what is he talking about? He's talking about the judgment seat of Christ. Don't you want rewards for your life as a Christian? Don't you want something to show for the 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years God gives you on this planet? Think of all the seconds that we have alive. And how many of those seconds are wasted? How many of them are used for Jesus Christ? I want something to show for him when I get there. Okay? 
And, and, and the idea is this. He's saying, look, if you want someone's spirit to be saved, you want them to have a chance to repent while they're down this earth so that when they get there, they've got something to show for their life. This is how you deal with it. You go, you know what, brother, we love you. Uh, we don't think we're better than you, but brother, until you get right with God, you're not welcome back. That's a hard pill. You go, oh, that's not right. That sounds cultish. Well, then take it up with God. He wrote the book. I didn't. Uh, you know what Paul tells him to do? You got to get rid of the guy until he gets right with God. Now, I'm not going to go through all the chapters, but eventually in the second letter of the Corinthians, the guy gets it right, and Paul has to tell them, hey, let the guy back in. All right? But, but notice what, what, this whole conversation about a sin being in someone's life and, and, what, it does, and what it does to the church. Uh, look at verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little what? Leaveneth the whole lump. And what does he say to do with that leaven? Well, I don't know. It just doesn't sound very loving. First off, I can tell you this. I've been doing this for, uh, for 13 years now, uh, going on 14 this summer. And uh, I can only think of one time I've ever had to do this. This is not something you do lightly. And this is not something you do because someone disagrees with you. You know what, Brother Craig? We don't see eye to eye on that, uh, that date of the rapture. Get out. Get out. A little leaven, leaven of the whole lump. There he goes. Amen. All right. So that's not what we're talking. Come back, come back, come back. That, that's not what we're talking about. Someone disagreeing with you does not qualify for 1 Corinthians 5. Someone rubbing you the wrong way is, is maybe God's way of helping you more than it is them. Uh, listen, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about friction in the body. We're talking about someone that is openly living in sin, does not want. Do you realize if the average modern church today practiced that, they'd be a whole lot smaller than they are? You know why no one wants to deal with that? Because nobody, everyone's going, well, we're all sinners. Yes, we are. And you know what? All of us are messing our own way. But I'm going to tell you right now, if I came to church and I'm living like that and I'm bragging about it and I don't want to repent, you have every right and responsibility to say, preacher, leave until you get right. I'm not above that book. You know, you know who the authority is? God. And God says, I'll tell you why. Because a little leaven, just a little bit, goes woof real fast. The idea is this, just a little bit of sin. Just a little bit of false doctrine. Look at Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5. You know what Pergamos does? They let some folks in, just like the Galatian church did. And Paul has to address that. You know, Paul, I feel like I, I read Paul's letters, I'm like, I get so much of Paul now. It's like he's playing spiritual whack-a-mole. He goes to one place, people get saved, getting baptized. Woo, you know, over here, the church he just left a couple months ago. Oh, they believe you need to be circumcised to get saved. Whack, 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 whack. You know, and then over here, you know, the Corinthians. Ah, whack, whack, whack. And he just does that in all of his letters, kind of dealing with the issues of the church. Uh, look at Galatians 5, Galatians chapter 5. And uh, look, if you would, at verse number uh, 4. Uh, yeah, verse 4. Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law. You're fallen from grace. Now, someone will take that verse and say, see, you can lose your salvation. You, it, Paul is saying you're falling from grace if you don't have salvation to begin with because you are saying that you're saved by something that you're not saved by. All right, You're not saved by the works of the law. Uh, look at verse number five. By the way, the context of Galatians is there are people, uh, Judaizers, uh, the term that is thrown around these days, uh, not always used the right way, but the term that's thrown around these days is legalist. Now, the real way to describe a legalist is someone that tries to bring you back under the law. All right, you having some kind of standards in your life as a Christian, that's not legalism. All right, that's you trying to have a pure life walking with God. 
You need some standards. You need some convictions in your life. Nothing wrong with that. But if I got up here tonight and I said this, if, if I said, hey, look, if you don't read three chapters a day, then I know you're not saved. You know what I'd be trying to do? Try to put you under some kind of law. And that's not Bible. You know how you get saved? You don't get saved by reading your Bible. You get saved by trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior. You grow as a Christian by reading your Bible. But, but when you try to make a law part of salvation, that's when you're in trouble. All right, now look at Galatians 5, verse number uh, 6. Uh, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Ye did run well. Now the next, thing, next question is not what did hinder you, but look at it real closely. What's the question? Who? That means someone's coming in the church and teaching some things that aren't right. And trying to bring people back under a false sense of, I think I'm lost because I didn't do X, Y, and Z. Now, now notice how he describes, look at verse 8. This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. There are times, and I mean this graciously, when people ask me questions that I'm kind of like, man, did you get that from reading your Bible? Well, I heard some preacher on YouTube. Okay. Uh, you say, what is that? Well, there's, there's times when I, I get these things come my way and I go, it just seems like that's not from God. Like, you're getting that from someone else. You're not getting that from the Lord. And, and, and listen, when you read your Bible, if you've got a question that pops up, you need to get it addressed. Praise God. But man, when you go off in loony land on YouTube and you find all kinds of wackadoos who are saying crazy things about, you know, on the other side, the dark side of the moon, there may be this and that. And, the, you know, we never did land there. And, you know, the earth is flat and whatever else. And whatever other thing is out there these days. Pastor, what do you think about that? I think you didn't find that in your Bible. That's what I think about that. All right? And so Paul says, this persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. Look at verse 9. What does he say? Mm. Just a little bit. And you know what leaven is? It's mixing something in there. You know, over in Exodus 12, God tells them, don't put leaven. Don't put leaven. Leave the leaven. Get the leaven out of your houses. Uh, he talks about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Don't have it around. He, say, now, he goes to the extent of saying, you don't even have it in your house. During the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In other words, I, it's not even I don't want it in your bread. I don't want it in your dwellings. Now, if I'm reading this for the first time, I'm going, who cares if there's a leavening agent in my cupboard? You know, but from God's standpoint, it's a picture or something. It's how comfortable you are with things that aren't in, li in line with him. It's how comfortable you are with taking shortcuts. I just want the bread to rise right now. Okay. You can do that. You can get, you can get to where you want to go right now. You know what the Bible says? Bible says, humble yourself, and in due time, God will exalt you. You know, you, know what, you know what God's saying here? He says, watch out for that leaven. You're mixing things that don't belong together. That is literally, listen, if, if marriage in the Bible is defined as flesh joining flesh, and adultery is defined as flesh that's joining flesh it should not be joined with, you know what that tells you? The picture here is this. Hey, you're allowing some things in the church that don't belong there. Can I, can I give you some thoughts here? And I, I promise I'm trying to help you. Uh, the modern Christian today says, well, I know what the Bible says, but. I'm going I'm to say something I know it's going to probably rub some folks the wrong way. I'm trying to help you. I want to reset you a little bit. I don't believe in abuse. I think when someone abuses their authority, uh, that's a sign of weakness and a sign of immaturity and a sign of cowardice. At the same time, the Bible does put authority in its place for a reason. Now, you can say whatever you want. You can believe it's America. Believe whatever you want. No one's going to come down on you, but up between you and the Lord, if you're a child of God, you need to understand this. When you take a position God doesn't take, that's you going out from under God's authority. So, for example, parents, uh, what is the biblical way of dealing with kids and, and when they disobey? How do we deal with that? Well, we can't talk about that. And you just don't want it online. 
Well, you know what the Bible says about it. So the modern Christian will say, well, you know, I went through this when I was a kid, and therefore I don't want to. Well, then don't abuse your kid. It'd be like saying, you know, I saw my dad be a terrible husband, therefore I'm never going to get married. What? What? Right. No, you need to get, you should, if God wants you to get married, get married. Don't, you don't do, it's like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Right. Just because someone abused, some, it'd be like this. I saw a guy once that weighed 400 pounds, I'm never eating again. <laughs> right. Is that the right way to handle that? No. So why would you say, well, someone abused what was, what was right because they took it and took You know, do you guys realize that, that what fornication is, it's a twist and a perversion of something that God says is beautiful between a man and a woman? All right, so you know what? You know what, when, what abuse is, physical abuse? It's a twist on what God says is right in regards to dealing with children. Now listen, let me tell you right now, you don't, if you ever commit a kid in anger, you're doing it the wrong way. You know how you do it? You sit a kid down and go, do you know what you did wrong? Yep. He usually goes like this. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, do you know what you know what the punishment is, right? Yeah. All right. Well, here's it. Here it is. You're gonna get it. And when we're done, we're gonna talk about what you did wrong and why you did it. And we're gonna talk about how you can get it right with the Lord. And after that, we're not gonna talk about it again. We're gonna walk away as if it was all washed away under the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Didn't raise my voice. Didn't yell. Didn't throw anything. Didn't slam a door. You. There's some folks that in, maybe even here. I hope you're not here, but maybe you are. You're kind of hypocritical about this subject. Because you'll, you'll see a, a person yell at a kid and go, that's no big deal. You know what's more detrimental to a kid? Someone that can't control their, their temper as an adult. Right. If I sit my kid down and lovingly tell them there's a punishment for what you did wrong, and here's the punishment, and here's what's going to happen. And I, I don't get out of control. And I tell them, here's what's happening, and, and I give it to them. And afterwards, we pray together. Guys, I'm going to tell you right now, that brings a whole lot more control in that child's life and confidence. You say, why? Because they'll understand where the boundaries are at. And they'll understand that when they do something wrong. But you know what some Christians say? Well, you know, I read this book, and, and this is the better way to do it. Well, God, you can't improve on what God said. God puts that stuff in the book for a reason. But the modern Christian goes, yeah, but. You know what that is? You're mixing worldly philosophy with the church. And you're not going to get a good outcome. Like, look at where we're at today. It's not a great place as far as the church is concerned. I don't mean our church. I mean the church at large. I mean the body of Christ all around us. Uh, we're walking in, uh, in uh, Barnes & Noble, and this poor college girl is sitting there and trying to find a Bible, and she's looking at all these different versions, and she's standing there. I mean it. Right. She, and I mean it seriously. She's going, and she pulls one out, and she puts it back. Pulls one out, puts it back. Pulls one out, puts it back. And uh, I looked at my wife. I said, here we go. Um, I said, it's hard to pick one, isn't it? She goes, yeah. I said, where do you even start, right? She's like, Yes. I said, well, can I encourage you to do this? And I said, and I, I, I said, I believe that it's old. It's old-fashioned, old and people are going to say you can't read it, but you look pretty smart to me. I think you can handle it. I'd encourage you to read this book. And she goes, okay. And she pulls out the gun. My wife started talking to her, invited her to church. But, you know, the modern church, you know where they're at? No boundaries. I have no idea what's right or wrong. I'm just choosing whatever comes my way. Now, let me tell you something. You know what that is? That's the world. There are no absolutes. There's no real one Bible. There's no real one way to heaven. There's no, you say, what is that? That's the world today. And the church has embraced it to such a point where, you know what? We're mixing, mixing worldly philosophy. Listen, let me tell you right now, gentlemen and ladies, I need to be upfront with you. It is not 50-50 in marriage all the time. So you know what it ought to be? First off, I'll tell you the biblical response is 100-100. That's what it ought to be. But at a certain point, gentlemen, let me say this, as a man, it's going to be 51 for. I know. All the women's live are going to go, oh, I can't believe you're a chauvinist. Show them, 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 them. Tell me what man you have, and I'll, I guarantee you that man's going to treat you as good as I'll treat my wife. Because if you're looking for a man that thinks everything's equal, then you know what? You pay for dinner. You buy him flowers. 
Oh, that sounds weird, doesn't it? But if it's equal, that's how it's supposed to go, right? Well, you know why? Because God didn't design us to be the same. And I know I've mentioned this the other day. You go, preacher, why don't you just back off from this? I'll tell you why. Because I feel like when I get there, it's kind of like, mm. and I just want our church to be on the same page biblically. It doesn't mean that as a man, I, I run over my wife. She has her own will, and we communicate, and we talk about things, and, and we discuss things, and we plan things. But at a certain point, listen, gentlemen, you're supposed to leave. You say, what is that? That's Bible doctrine. And the world says, no, we don't do that anymore. If you don't want to do that anymore, knock yourself out. By the way, do you know what, ladies? Can I tell you right now? Uh, the idea of women being equal and all this stuff. Do you realize if we really wanted to solve the, the Me Too crisis and all that kind of stuff that's going on, there could be a couple ways to do it. Number one, you teach young men to be courteous and chivalrous and keep their hands to themselves and treat women like the Bible says to. Number two, you get rid of pornography. That'll solve it real fast. But you know what? When you have ladies saying, no, it's my expression of art, sister, let me tell you something. When that's your expression of art, don't be surprised when society turns out the way it does. Right. What I'm getting at is this. The world wants to go in the direction it wants to go in, and the church goes, okay, we're going to go, keep, just keep going along. Keep giving, keep giving, keep giving. Where do you draw the line? You know what Ephesus did? Ephesus drew the line, and yes, they got out of fellowship with God, and that wasn't right, but Pergamus goes, we're just going to mix everything together. We're going to leaven this thing up. It doesn't turn out well. You know, he mentions a man named Balaam in this passage. Look at uh, Numbers chapter 22. Numbers chapter 22. In Revelation chapter 2, as you turn to Numbers, he talks about this being where Satan's seed is and where Satan dwells. And he talks about the doctrine of Balaam. And he mentions the doctrine of Balaam being connected with three things. The children of Israel having the stumbling block of idolatry and eating things offered to idols and, and committing fornication. And the third thing is the, the, the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which we'll talk about. But these are the three things connected with Balaam. And you may go, I don't understand what all that stuff is. Balaam's a real interesting character in the Bible. And I think it's important. If you read Revelation 2 and you go, well, they're, they're guilty by the Lord's account of, of allowing the doctrine of Balaam to come into the church, you probably ought to find out who Balaam is and what he did, right? That makes sense. And what's really weird about the story of Balaam is in the passage itself in Numbers, you can't put all the pieces together. You have to take other parts of the Bible and go, oh, that's what happened. Because when you read the story of Balaam, look at Numbers chapter 22. You say, who is Balaam? Well, he's this prophet uh, that nobody knows a whole lot about. He would, wouldn't have been known by uh, a lot of historical measures if it wasn't for God recording his name in the Bible. Uh, but look at Numbers 22. By the way, you know what compromise did to the church? Compromise is far more dangerous than persecution. When, when persecution is there, the lines are pretty clearly drawn. When compromise is present, let me tell you something, you don't know where anything's at. You, know where, you don't know where the church is at, where the world is at, where the church begins, where the world begins, and it just kind of all gets mixed together. Uh, compromise, I've, I've read this before, is simply changing the question to fit the answer. A lot of people go, well, preacher, what do you think about this? I love it when someone asks me, what do you think about this? Well, here's what the Bible says. Yeah, but don't you think, what do you want me to do? Yes, you're right. So now you can walk away and go, Pastor Adrian said I can do it. Uh, listen, it doesn't matter what I think. What matters is what God says. And, and I'm going to tell you right now, we live in a day and age where everything's getting mixed together, everything. And, and I know this comes up. I know it comes up, and I know it's very countercultural. Uh, the reason why the devil is sowing the seeds of confusion about gender right now it's a whole lot deeper than just people's own sexuality. It's a whole lot deeper than that. 
And the reason all of that stuff is going on is so you get to a place where there are literally no absolutes. None. You say, what happens when a world spins out of control with no absolutes? Eventually, a dictator shows up that says, I can help. What the world is getting ready for right now, believe it or not, is they're getting ready for the Antichrist. And Christian, what I'm telling you is you ought to draw more lines in your life than you have right now. There are some things where you got to go, you know what, maybe kids, maybe it's not a good idea for us to just watch this right now. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't be looking at that. You know, let me just tell you this, young people, if you ever get weirded out when your parents sit down to watch a movie with you, and you go, oh, this is awkward with me and mom's sitting here watching this with me. Maybe you shouldn't watch it. I mean, seriously. Uh, let me ask you, and, and you don't need to raise your hand. God forbid you do that, please. But what are your standards for yourself by yourself when no one else is around with your phone? Oh, it's no big deal. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Oh, it's no big deal. And then you go, well, I can hang out with that person. I can handle it. No, you can't. Hey, well, how can, I, how can I reach them? I'm not talking about being a monk. I'm not saying you withdraw yourself from society. Hey, listen, uh, for whatever it's worth, some of you listen to the preaching I preach from the pulpit. You go, that guy must live out in the middle of nowhere, which I do. And, and he has no friends. I have friends. And, and I bet, man, he doesn't have any contacts with anybody in the world at all. I run a company. I got to have contacts in the world. Trust me, I do business. I deal with people all the time. But I'm going to tell you right now, there are lines that if I didn't draw, you would not like the Adrian that I turn into. You say, why? Because if you don't draw the lines, I'm going to tell you right now, the world's going to draw them for you or they'll blur, blur all them out. When you don't make the decision and you don't do it based on being yielded to the Holy Spirit, someone else makes that decision for you. You don't want the world doing that. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me say it like this. The Bible says, love not the world, neither the things in the world. The love, uh, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Do you realize that when Paul says this in Galatians, that God saved us, that he might deliver us from this present evil world. God's plan when he saved you was to get you out of here. <laughs> In other words, that's the reason why the church is so important, the body of Christ and, and, and the local church as well. It's a calling out. It's God's way of saying, you're not going to be here forever. I don't want you identifying with that. Listen, when you get married, I'm going to tell you right now, you lose some of your identity. And you find some of it as well. You find a new identity in your spouse. If you don't believe that, watch people after they've been married for five, ten years. I'm going to tell you right now, if my wife had never been married, she probably wouldn't watch NFL every Sunday. Okay? And I probably would never watch a Christmas Hallmark movie either. Okay? All right? There, there are things. Listen, when you get married, when you join with someone, you find a part of your identity you didn't even know was there. When you got saved, that's exactly what happened to you when you got saved. And God placed you in the church, and he gives you a brand new identity. You know what I'm saying? You don't want to be the church that loses its identity. And let me tell you right now, some of the, the major, you, do, you guys realize the, the largest churches in America in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, you know what they were? Independent Baptist churches. They were the mega church. You know what happened? We lost our way. We made it about people and about a following of a man and we made it about monuments and about this and about programs and we got away from the word of God and, and soul winning and, and really reaching people as the gospel intended and making it about Jesus Christ and not about us. And in addition to that, we said, yeah, we'll adopt the world's philosophies. Yeah, we'll give here. We'll kind of add that in here and we'll, we'll kind of mix this in here. And the Lord goes, okay, keep mixing. See how it turns out. I'm gonna tell you right now, there's some things that just don't go together. They don't. 
All right. Kale on pizza. Amen. Amen. Doesn't belong there. All right. Uh, uh, I, I, I'll give you some other things. I mean, you knock yourself out if you like this, man. But I cannot imagine putting liquor in my coffee. No, thank you. Coffee needs to be coffee. Amen. When you mix certain things, they just don't go together. Uh, there's a, uh, I, I watched uh, someone do this. They put uh, a peanut butter and onions together. Now, if you eat peanut butter and onion sandwiches, please brush your teeth before you come to church, all right? Uh, you have the freedom to do it. You're not lost, we don't think. But, but I, I, I would say there's just some things that just don't go together, okay? Now, now look, I don't mean to, to, to make fun of it, but I would say this. Uh, for someone that's about to get married, uh, I would say this. If you look back at former relationships and you compare it to the, the golden gem that you have now, you go, man, this is the real thing. All those other things, mm-mm. All right? All right, listen, when it comes to your relationship with Jesus Christ, that's the real thing. Amen. When it comes to truth and the Bible and the old paths, as the Bible says, that's the real stuff. When you start mixing all the stuff together and you try to mix it just to make people feel good, I'm going to tell you right now, you end up with a mess. And what happened during that period of time, we'll get back to Balaam in a moment, from 325 to 500 AD, they made Christianity kind of cool. Anytime you make Christianity cool, let me tell you something, it doesn't turn out biblical. And they basically made it to where, hey, Christians can kind of all be part of the, 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 the church and the state brought together. That's what happened during that period of time, 325 to 500 AD. And as it relates to Balaam, look at uh, uh, Numbers chapter 22. Numbers chapter 22. See what happens in Numbers 22. Well, I'm just going to skip through some verses here real fast. Uh, but Balak is a king. And Balak wants uh, a prophet, someone that he sees as being in tune with God, he wants that person to curse Israel. He is scared and acting out of fear. When people live by fear, they do stupid things. So what he does is he says, all right, Balaam, I want you to come and I want you to curse Israel, God's chosen people. So, so Balaam has this opportunity. And uh, look, if you would, at verse number uh, 12. What does God tell him in verse number 12? You know what God tells him? Don't go. Don't go. Uh, can I just give you a shortcut to the, to the rest of the, uh, the passage? Can I give you a, 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 a spoiler alert? Uh, he goes. And I'm going to go through the whole entire story. But he goes, and in chapter 23, you know what he does? He gets up there, and he tries a number of times to curse Israel. And every time he gets up, all he does, he talks about how God blesses Israel. And so Balak gets upset at Balaam, and he gets upset. And he goes, man, I thought you were going to help me curse them. Uh, look at uh, Numbers 23, verse 27. And Balak said unto Balaam, come, I pray thee. Now remember... John, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, mentions the doctrine of Balaam being brought into the church of Pergamos. So it's important to understand what Balaam did to avoid it. Uh, look at uh, verse number uh, 20, uh, look at 25. Balak said unto Balaam, neither curse them at all nor bless them at all. But Balaam answered and said unto Balak, told not I thee, saying, all that the Lord speaketh that I must do. And Balak said unto Balaam, come, I pray thee, I will bring thee into another place. You ought to look at it uh, in verse 27. Peradventure, it will please God that thou mayest curse me them from thence. And Balak brought Balaam unto the top of Peor. It's a mountain. Let look at toward Jeshimon. And Balaam said to Balak, build me here seven altars. And they build the altars. He said, what happens? Well, what happens is this. He goes into a trance in chapter 24. And uh, he starts giving prophecy about things. Look down at verse number um, 17. You know what verse 17 is? That's Balaam prophesying about Jesus Christ. Isn't that wild? So what's the problem with Balaam? It looks like everything he's doing is right. I mean, he, he says, you know, I mean, he, does, he shouldn't have gone, but then he does go and he at least preaches the right stuff. And every time Balaam tries to get him to curse Israel, he doesn't, he blesses them. 
Look, look if you would, at verse number 25 of chapter 24. This is how it looks like everything kind of ends. Balaam goes his way. Balak goes his way. And from the passage, it kind of looks like that's the end of it. Look at chapter 25. I just want you to kind of skim through here. Look at verse 1. Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom. With the daughters of who? Wasn't Balak the king of Moab? Um, read the rest of the passage some other time. It gets into some really interesting stuff. And uh, I'll just say this. Balaam, if you read 1 Peter chapter 2 in Jude, you know what you find out? Balaam said, I can't curse them. I can't do it. Every time I try it, God just says, here's, what, here's how they're, they're blessed of me. But King, King, uh, King Balak, here's what I, I tell you. If you can't beat them, join them. So you know what he does? He says, you know what? I can't curse him, but you've got some good-looking women down there, don't you? Yeah. They'll do the job. And so what they end up doing is Balaam gives Balak advice on how to mix Israel with Moab. And when you read chapter 25, boy, it gets to be a mess. You know what happens? You've got a couple running through that has no business doing what they're doing in front of the tabernacle, the doors of the tabernacle. No shame. And the only way to, to deal with it is Phineas grabs a spear and throws it through both of them. You say, that's terrible stuff. You say, well, well, it was God's way of saying that stuff doesn't belong here. You say, what did Balaam do? Well, according to the New Testament, he got Israel not to fall by persecution, not to fall by attack. See, sometimes the, attack, the, the real attack in your life is not the head-on. Sometimes the real attack in your life is where can you make a shortcut? Yep. Yep. Where can you take the compromise? You say, what? Oh, nobody's going to know. Mom won't know. Dad won't find out. Husband won't know. Wife won't know. Preacher won't know. Yeah, but you know. And God knows. Now, the problem is this. When you have people that come into the church and go, Preacher, can you just kind of take the heat off? And why do we have to take a position on this? And why do we have to be dogmatic about this? And why do we have to draw a line here? I'll tell you why we do that not because we think we're better than other people if anything it's because we have a fear of god that if we don't draw the lines we'll get swept away with the rest of it we need that in our lives now the lord tells them look if you overcome go back to revelation chapter two i say all of that to say this the church of pergamos got too comfortable with the world and while they have a martyr named antipas it's the lord's way of saying hey I'm glad someone was willing to take it in the neck for me, but the rest of you are getting a little too cozy with some things. He tells them in verse 16 to repent, and if they do that, they can overcome. You know how you can overcome as a Christian? Repent. Yeah. Now, repent doesn't mean I've quit every bad habit in my life. Now I can come to church. That's not what it means. Repent means I want go I'm going to look at this the way God looks at this. I'm going to change my mind on this. And let me tell you something, I'm not making light of sin, but you know I think God appreciates someone that fell and gets back up and feels sick to their stomach for what they did and says, God, I'm sorry, versus someone that says, no big deal, doesn't matter. You say, what is that, little leaven, leaven at the whole lump. And church, let me tell you something, in these last days, we cannot afford to be married to the world. God says, not going to work. Your philosophy, your decision-making process, does it line up more with the world or with the Word of God? Your friends, 
your relationships, your hobbies, your interests. I didn't say hobbies and interests are bad. I think there's some great stuff. You know what God, the Bible says in Timothy? He's given us all things richly to enjoy. You live in one of the most beautiful states in the, in the country. Man, there's hiking, there's fishing, there's all kinds of stuff you can do and enjoy. But I'm going to tell you right now, there's some things in our lives that God may go, you know what? It just seems to me like you're going a little too close to the world. It seems to me like you're kind of marrying up with something that should not get mixed together. It seems to me like you're allowing some leaven in there. And let me tell you something, it does not end well. He warns him. He tells him to repent in verse 16. And in verse 17, he says this, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to you the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new what? Which no man saving he, which no man knoweth saving he that receiveth it. So you know what, you know what Christians do? What does the name say? You're not going to know because you're not receiving it. Now, that's not for the Christian today. That's for someone going through the Great Tribulation. But can I give you this to consider? You know what was worn by the priests in the Old Testament? They wore this breastplate. Uh, look at Exodus chapter 28. We're almost done. They wore this breastplate. You know what it had? It had all kinds of colored stones on it. And on every stone, you know what it had on the stone engraved in it? The name of the tribe of Israel that it represented. And that priest would wear that breastplate, and on that breastplate was stones with names on it. And you know who wore that? The high priest. Who's your high priest? And uh, so you go back to Exodus 28. You know what you read? Look at Exodus 28. This is God's instruction about this. Exodus chapter 28, verse number 17. Exodus 28, verse 17. Now so set it in settings of stones. Even four rows of stones. The first row shall be a sardis, a topaz, a carbuncle. And it goes through this entire list. Uh, look at verse number 21. And the stones shall be with the what? That the, the stones are associated with names of the tribes of Israel. Now, now I'm not going to tell you I've got this whole thing figured out because I don't. If you say, Pastor, what's the white stone and what's the hidden manna? Here, here's what I can tell you. Uh, it's hidden because I don't know what it is. Amen. Uh, but I'll also say this about this as it relates to manna. You know what manna was? Manna was something that God only gave to Israel. You know what it was? It was a matter of national identity and God's provision. You know what happens when you go to the world? You lose your identity. You lose it as a Christian. The world's trying to find it out there, and they're not going to find it out there either. You find it in Christ. Those stones are matched with names, and those names are what identify them with the promises of God. Now, I, I'm not going to tell you how the whole white stone thing figured out or the hidden manna, but I'll say this. It's, I can at least say this much. It's a picture of identity. And Christian, from a practical standpoint, when we allow the world to infiltrate the church, and we go, hey, we'll kind of be like them and go along with all this stuff. I'm going to say right now, what happens is you don't, you don't win people that way. You just lose who you are. And, and I'm going to tell you something right now. The greatest picture I can think of, because it's the Bible picture, is marriage. After 20, almost 24 years of marriage, I, I can tell you what, man, I would struggle if my wife was gone tomorrow. You know why? Because that's part of my identity now. And that's how God designed that. Well, let me tell you, I'm thankful Jesus Christ will never leave me nor forsake me. Yeah. I don't have to worry about that. We don't have to worry about him moving away. 
We have to worry about us moving away. Your identity, let me say this one last time, your identity, our identity as a church, it's found in that book and it's found in the person of Jesus Christ. And when we ever try to replace it with anything or anybody else, we lose who we are. That's the lesson for Pergamus. Let's all stand. Father, we thank you for time in the word. Lord, thank you for the richness of your book, the ability to study it, Lord, open it up. And God, I pray that you'd use it, Lord, to be a help and a blessing to your people. God, thank you for Bible study. Lord, thank you for the ability to learn. And Lord, I pray we take the heed to the warnings. And um, well, I don't, I don't know. Lord, I can, I, I believe sometimes. I know as 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 a believer, it's very easy just to kind of go with the flow and not realize what's actually happening in our lives. Lord, help us to be guarded of our relationship with you, guarded of our testimony, guarded of our identity. And Lord, uh, just thank you for the lessons. Lord, thank you for reminding us that we can draw lines, but if we lose our relationship with you like Ephesus, we're missing out. Lord, thank you for patterns of those that were able to, to suffer and go through things as Smyrna did. God, the suffering that we go through is not something you ignore. And Lord, it's, it's bitter to us, but it's sweet to you if we handle it the right way. We gotta pray as we learn about Pergamus. Lord, we're thankful for that, that one martyr that's mentioned and called out. It's just a reminder that even if we are in the midst of a Pergamus mentality of people around us, where we can still be what you want us to be, or we can be Antipas. And Lord, I, I pray you'd help us as a church. Lord, if anything, God, would you help us as a church to... Lord, to, to strive to maintain, Lord, our identity, not, it's not about us, it's about you. We want to be a church that wins people to you, Lord, loves them, Lord, loves on them, disciples them, is a church family, Lord, makes it about you and not about us. We don't want to lose that. We love you, Lord. Thank you for the word tonight. We ask in Jesus' name, amen, amen. What's that song, brother? What number is it? 323 in blue. Grab your blue hymnal. 323 in the blue.